I'm Matt Ingram. I'm a musician, a producer, and a co-owner of Urchin Studios in East London. In these podcasts, I'll be talking with creative individuals that I know and admire about music, art, the creative process, and of course, whatever else comes up. Joining me today is Chris Kimsey, who produced and engineered many notable Rolling Stones recordings, including Tattoo You and Some Girls. I had this chat with Chris in the old Olympic studios in Putney, which is where he began his career as an assistant in the late 60s. We had a really great chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Chris, thank you very much for doing this. And it feels quite appropriate that we're here at Olympic, which is kind of like where it all began. Was it, was it, was it was your first job? Yes. Well, it's my only job. Well, yeah. I, I, actually, I'm still looking for a job. <laughs> um, I think I might have got one, actually. Um, but yes, it's my spiritual home in so much as um, I started here in 1967. Um, I think it was September of 1967. Um, I didn't realise actually that it had only been open kind of a, a year. Um, actually, no, not even a year because it opened in. Um, no, it was a year. It opened in September, October '66 in this location in Barnes. Mm. Before that, it was in Carlton Street, um, around the back of uh, Marble Arch, um, and the lease for that place expired. So they were looking for. A new, a new place, and um, and Keith Grant, who was the engineer, the genius engineer, um, of both Olympic and Carton Street, and here obviously, um, he found this spot, and um, and slowly renovated it. It was a, I, I saw some photos of it when they took it over. It moved. It, it was, um, it started life in 1906 as a theatre. Right. It was built as a theatre. Um, and it was one of the first buildings then to have an underground car park for, right. for carriages, okay. also carriages. Okay. Um, and it, it was built because they knew that they, the Hammersmith Bridge was being built. So there was a community here called the Kit Kat Club, who were lesbians and artists and theatrical. And so they thought, oh, OK, we're going to get some people coming over here. Let's build our own theatre. So they did. And then um, it... Um, Later on in its life, it became a cinema, a black and white. Obviously, during the after the after the First World War, right? So it was a cinema way way back. Yeah. Um, it remained and changed management of the cinema for some years, and then, then what happened then? Then, um, then it became um, in the forties or no, in the fifties, it became a TV filming studio for commercials so this is at the very beginning of independent television sure. so they would film black and white commercials for Purcell, Omo for I don't know um, whatever yeah. um, and then um, then after that it was bought um, by was it by EMI? oh it was at one point but that was a lot later in its life okay. it, it, it was actually bought um, in '66, by a gentleman called Cliff Adams. Cliff Adams was a highly successful jingles writer, and also he he owned the. the um, um, it was his vehicle was on BBC Radio every weekend Sunday. You'd have a program called Sing Something Simple, 
yeah, my, with the Cliff Adams scene. Right, I've heard, I heard of that, yeah. Yeah, so that was him. Okay. So um, a very successful arranger and composer, um, and he needed a studio to record you know, his music. So um, it, he was the owner, and Keith Grant was the, the designer, the engineer, Right. Um, at both Olympics and really it was uh, um, coming here in 67 I didn't get to meet Mr Adams until maybe a year later because you never saw him he was the, yeah. you know, the silent figure nobody as far as I was concerned it was Keith Grant Studio which yeah. it was I mean Keith built it sure. Keith designed the console oh, okay. um, with Dick Swetnam because Dick Swetnam who later went on to become Helios consoles which you may have heard of yes I have yeah. Helios became very very famous in the what in the late 70s yeah 70s um but dick started his work at olympic and so between keith and Gre uh, keith and keith and dick um they designed and built the first olympic console so the combination of of that console which had an amazing sound yeah um and the fact that the studio won was the most beautiful space. I mean, it's, it was a big space. You could put... How, how, how big was it? Um, can't remember the exact dimensions, but um, I've got them like somewhere. Abbey Road 2, that, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, a bit, maybe a bit bigger than that, really? actually. Okay. I mean, you, you get an 80-piece orchestra in there. Quite. Okay. It, it was oh, a big wow. room. All right. It was a big room. Um, but although it was big, it didn't sound big. It, it was one of those rooms when you walked into it, the way Keith had designed it. Um, and, you know, this is in the 60s, so there's not a lot of... Um, it's not eggshells on the, yeah, on the yeah. but it, you know it's not far from it. Um, and was it designed initially for more orchestral sessions and not for kind of like absolutely rock bands no? Quite it, it it was definitely it, it it was designed more in in keeping with a large orchestra that wouldn't spill everywhere sure. that you had control mm. and and the beautiful thing about it you walked into this big space. But you felt as if you were in someone's front room almost. Yeah. You know, it was really warm and inviting. Um, and I discovered that a lot later stage, one of the reasons for that is that, um, first of all, the, the floor, um, it wasn't a floating floor or anything like okay. we have today in studios. It, it, it was a, um, a wooden floor, which um, there was a basement underneath. Right. So all the, the low end base just traveled through the floor into the basement. Okay. It was dissipated that way. So there was no kind of honkiness of bottom end building. Was that by design? Was that no, design? no, that was just by accident. Lucky. Yeah, work. yeah. But that, that was the genius of Keith. Keith was very much, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Sure. And he would adapt things. So, but then he did, um, his father was an acoustician, so the two of them, they did them, um, they were doing measurements how to reduce contain the reverb length of the room. Yeah. So the, the ceiling was acoustically treated mm -hmm. with... I, I remember them as being like pegboard tiles, right. but they they were set like a triangular box, so that they were they weren't just like flat. They, yeah, I've they, seen I've seen yeah. pieces of it. Yeah, um, and then the walls were covered. Um, I don't know what was behind the walls. Uh, behind it was Hessian, Hessian big Hessian blocks, um, but the floor was lino. Lino. It was linoleum. Yeah, which I've, was which has always intrigued me. Um, in my search, you know, and going to other studios, yeah. is I've never seen that before. Because I, I imagine that would be really bright and pingy. Well, no, this was matte lino. No, okay. it was like a matte. It was, but so it was very soft and absorbent, actually. Okay, okay. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it wasn't the gloss one. It was. Okay, like, okay. Yes, yeah, so that that's always stuck in my mind, actually. Um, 
So it had this amazing sound. I mean, amazing sound, not only for orchestras, but then when um, kind of, you know, rock music or electrified um, bands came along, it worked so well for that as well. Um, so you just got to listen to all the records. Yeah, I mean, you, you can listen to, you know, you can plug a 50 watt, well, you can have a bigger watt if you want, but, you know, but I mean, uh, so just referencing like Jimmy Page playing in there, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. full up on the Marshall, um, and, um, and it's and, not painful, it's not, you know, it's not everywhere in the room, sure. it's just where it should be. Um, so the, the design was something unique. So going back to it, you said at the beginning how did you how did you get the gig you know okay I got the gig and, and, and how old were you I was 16 and a half oh wow really, yeah. Really, really yeah I left school early I didn't like school well not that I didn't like it but, um, but I, um, I I wasn't interested in further education um, I um, at school I was very very interested in recording I had a tape recorder I don't know why but I had a tape recorder when I was like 7 years old 8 years old and um um, I was fascinated with just pressing record and being able to play that sound back yeah. whenever I wanted to. Um, and that led into me maybe at like nine or ten, um, I would get pre-recorded seven and a half IPS, IPS tapes of albums like Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole or Davis, I think. Um, so that, I was intrigued by the sound. Um, and then at school, because I had a tape recorder, I would be asked to do the sound effects or music playback for school plays, right. which really loved. Um, an extension of that was that um, I was very into drama and theatre. That was what I loved at school. And an extension of that was that um, there was a um, a studio in in Foley Street, which is at the back of Tottenham Court Road in London. Um, which was run by the Inner, Inner London Education Authority um, at the time. And they would send young students there um, to learn more about recording, mm. but in particular recording prose, recording speech. Right. So I w was asked if I would like to go there, and it, was, it wasn't in school time, it was on the, on the Saturday, but I loved it. And so now I must be about 12. Um, um, I was living, my parents lived in North Cheam, so I would get the tube from Morden to Tottenham Court Road, 12 years old, um, and go to this school. Um, what was it called? It was called, I think it was called All Saints, Foley Street. And um, there was a Vortexian four channel mixer, a Farograph stereo tape recorder, and some Reslo ribbon microphones um, with a small booth. I mean, a booth big enough to get a drunk in, right. but that was about it. And I would record drama, just spoken prose poems. But then what happened was is that um, my school um, had a very unique building with a, um, um, a deep history. It was built um, as a hospital after the Crimean War for, you know, for soldiers coming back from the Crimean War. So it had a long history. Um, and then it was a mental asylum and one year the school decided that they would do a sonne lumiere um, about the building for you know for the parents and for the community so sure. so I was the one that okay well we'd like you to you know record all the sound effects sure. and also they got Dame Sybil Thorndike who was you know 
was a very, very famous actress, mm-hmm. um, and in her later years then, um, to, to narrate the story. Um, so again, I went to Foley Street to record Dave And, and were you like the engineer for that on the session? Yeah, yeah, it was the engineer, yeah, in my school uniform, yeah. Wow, yeah. that must have been a, that was yeah. a great experience. It was a great experience. But the, did it always feel natural to you? Completely that, that natural. Was, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I yeah. loved it. Yeah. I loved it. And I just loved sound. I wasn't really into like, you know, okay, so a few years later, Hendrix, Cree, I wasn't into that. I was more into film soundtracks. Really? I was more into orchestral, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and actually the first real record that I ever bought was Burt Kampfer, Swinging Safari, because I loved the sound of, of the orchestra, you know, it was a rhythm, it was one of the first kind of rhythm set, big bands with an electric bass, right. you know, and because it was an electric bass with a pick, the bottom end was as tight as a, you know, it was yeah, yeah, so yeah. tight, yeah. Uh, and that really, sonically, it was like, oh wow. Cool. How do they do that? I want to know. I want to know. But to get back how I got in here yeah. in Olympic in the first place. So, okay, so I'm really into um, sound and orchestral music or big band. Um, and I was, um, so now I'm like 15, yeah, 15 and a half, maybe just 16. And I'm dating a girl around the corner. Right. Um, um, Rachel O'Connor, I remember her name, um, and um, so I would come over here maybe once or twice a week to Barnes, because it was living, obviously living with mum and dad in Norching, and I just saw studios, and I knew that, you know, after the summer holidays I was going to be looking for a job, I need to do something, so I just thought I'd pop in, and I'd pop in and say, hi, have you got any jobs? They say, no, go away, and I kept coming back. I just kept coming back. So after maybe like third time, they said, oh, okay, what's your name? And they took my details. Um, um, and then, um, then another girlfriend, uh, and her brother ran a very, very successful shop fitting company. Um, so it was good overtime because you were traveling around the UK doing shop fitting. And he said, I know you're finishing school. You know, you can have a job there. So I said, oh, that's really, you know, that's fantastic. Well, one week, Friday afternoon, the phone calls. I'm about to start work for him the following week. Right. The phone calls, it's Olympic Studios. Can you come in for an interview, please? We'd like you to come in. So I went, oh, okay, fine. So went for the interview and terrified. Yeah. Thinking, yeah. what are they going to ask me? Um, and um, came in, met Keith Grant, studio manager, studio builder. And he showed me around the place and I was absolutely fascinated because it was it was four track, but just going to eight track. So the eight track had just arrived. Right. I saw the console in Studio One. And the one, this is this is what you're saying, 67? 67, okay. yeah, 67. Um, and just um, totally mesmerized by the whole thing. And, um, and the only real technical question he asked me, he said, do you know how to wire a 13 amp plug? So, you know, yes, I know how to do that. Um, and we had a good, you know, chat and that was it. He said, well, we're not looking for anyone, but that, you know. So I went back and said to the other girlfriend's brother, I said, um, um, I said, can I give it a week? Because there might be something else, you know. He said, well, I don't know about that. Anyway, the following week, Olympic called again and said, um, can you come back on Thursday and start um, 11 pounds a week? Um, wow. So that was it. I had my foot in the door. 
as it were, not knowing what the door was. Uh, was the door like an apprenticeship? Um, it, yes, it, it wasn't like an intern. I, I mean, no. I was paid. You yeah, know, yeah. I was paid. It wasn't like you obviously know. they didn't in the interview. They didn't you know say you know they didn't ask you a lot of technical questions. No, so it was the idea they take someone enthusiastic and then exactly train train them like exactly. Train them up, yeah. uh, Keith obviously had this unique gift of of meeting someone and deciding this this kid's got the right aptitude. He's got right. there's something special going on yeah. there. So, um, so what, what did you do at Footlow? So the first day, so the first day I arrived, I was told by um, dear Anna Menzies, who, who Anna, Anna was also the studio manager. I mean, she, Anna looked after all of the staff, her boys, because um, we were all boys. And um, she booked all the sessions. She did everything. Anna, she's, Anna's lovely. So um, Anna said to me, she said, um, right, Kimsey, go upstairs, Studio One. Um, discreetly pop in, say hello, sit down and observe. So I went into the session, Studio One, and there was, um, um, I think it was a jingle session. It was like a rhythm section, maybe with um, a horn section as well. And walked in and saw that the engineer was sitting at the desk and there was um, a, a producer next to him and no one else in the room. And walked in and the engineer looked at me and I said, Hi, I'm, my name's Chris. Um, I work here. I was told to come up. I was told to come up, and he said, "Fantastic!" He said, "Can you take over?" <laughs> and and I looked, and I, it was an eight track then. And I looked, and he said, um, "The assistant's disappeared. I think he's sick. Can you take over?" So I said, "Yes, okay." So I sat down next to the eight track and looked at the tape box, and it had the title of the song, and 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 the form was that you would identify what was happening with each take. So take one was FS, which was a full start. So the more they got to the first bar and cocked it up. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then if it went further, it was called, but didn't get to the end, it was called breakdown. Okay. So, you know, take two breakdown. So they got maybe to, you know, the last chorus or whatever, and then fucked up. So, so I thought, okay, I can do that. So, and also I knew how to operate a tape machine. Right. So, uh, and I still have a loving memory um, of, I remember the controls so well of that 3M, it was a 3M 8-track machine. Just the actual, um, the, 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 like the type font onto the buttons, it sounds crazy. <laughs> but, and just the tactile, I remember those buttons so well. I got very excited when EMI released, with, you know, the book about the Beatles, recording the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a lovely photograph of that said, you know, control panel. <laughs> Look at it. Yeah. <laughs> Bit like looking at a model train set, you know, catalogue or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. So um, I sat down and I, yeah, okay, we call, okay, we called, stop, rewind, playback, blah, blah. So 15 minutes later, session's finished, and the engineer, he said, hi, Chris, he said, thank you, it's good to meet you, well done. And he said, how long have you worked here? I said, about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and he was quite amazed, and his name was Alan O'Duffy. So uh, this you had this amazing sort of, upbringing, apprenticeship, whatever here. Yeah. So when, it, when you got to like, you know, the, the, the big gig with the Stones, yeah. you, might, you must have, you obviously must have felt comfortable and natural. Very comfortable, yeah. Very com I mean, also, it wasn't here, it was in Paris. Yeah. It was at Pathy Marconi, um, um, which, um, um, which wasn't like EMI here, <laughs> totally opposite. So were they, they were doing a lot in France then for, was it tax? Well, tax yeah, they, they were, at that time, they weren't recording in England. Um, because of tax, so right. it, it was um, anywhere but England. Um, let, let, can we talk a little? Let's talk a little bit about the um, 
I mean, we we spoke about this before um, about the the, the the Stones' process of recording because it's really interesting how they sort of well, I'll let you so uh, yes, it's interesting in so much as um, um, the band would never get together outside the studio and write a song the songs I mean this is my experience I don't know what happened you know before yeah. um, but it, it would uh, well actually it's even the same on Exile because they were they weren't in the studio but they were all living kind of together in Capferat so it was only when they were all together so um, the band would arrive at the studio and Keith or Mick would have a chord progression you know a bit of a song yeah and play it to the rest of the band they kind of listen and work it out and and just jam it over and over again. Just jam it, kind of trying to feel the way in every sense, tempo, the groove, everything. Um, Mick would have, um, he would have, generally he'd have like a verse and a chorus. Okay. Hadn't done the rest, you know, just an idea. Um, and um, Keith, Keith would have, Keith's songs were a little more defined in a way, in so much as it was, a chorus and a verse definitely sorted out that was it um, waiting for the middle eight or the bridge to arrive you might wait a month or two um, but it was a process of them going into the studio and just jamming through yeah. until the feel and the right arrangement came along and I so that would take that could take a very long process mm. um, might work on song A for I don't know for like a couple of hours um, get bored with that, go on to something new, come back to that other song and kind of fine tune them in that way. Yeah. Um, and then, so for me, it, it was a very, um, you had to really be on the ball because you never knew when they were going to kind of hit it and get sure. it get it right. Well, I don't know if it's right, but never know when that magic one would arrive. And the relationship that I had with them then on some girls was very, very, cool and interesting in so much I was a new boy and there was also a, a new musician called Chuck Lavelle he was the keyboard player that had just joined the band Stu was still alive Stu was still playing but Stu wouldn't play you know he, he was um, he had particular keys and he, he would only play in certain songs right um, he was a real blues boogie genius Rocky 88 so, yeah Professor Longhair I mean Stu was an amazing musician and, and his knowledge of blues yes. and New Orleans, yeah, wonderful person. Um, so Chuck was a new kid on the block as well. So we were staying at the same hotel together, and we go, "Did they say anything? Did they say anything about the sound?" <laughs> he said, "No." I said, "Is it they say anything about the playing?" I said, "No." So, <laughs> um, and and also, what was kind of weird is that um, Mick and Keith were the only ones that would come in the control room. Really, but they would only come. I mean, maybe once in the evening they would come in and never to discuss the sound, never anything about the sound. That was left to you. That was left to me completely. Yeah. And also it was left to me how I set the band up in the studio. Really? Okay. Um, um, because, um, uh, and I also, knowing the way that it was happening, I decided that um, they were set in a kind of a semicircle um, and that Mick, um, rather than being confined to headphones I put up a small PA with the vocal going through it so they could play and hear Mick's voice 
got it so it didn't bleed on the other mics. How, how did you do that? Well, I don't know. It just happened. <laughs> uh, well, it's very cheap PA. It was okay, a sure. Okay, okay, it was okay. a sure, one of those sure columns with just a horn at the top and like I don't know six. You know, bass speaker. I mean, it was a yeah. Right, right. It wasn't. You know, yeah. It was a basic a toy PA, but it kind of it, that for it worked for that because it really was just like you could just hear vaguely where he was singing right. and the melody and. Um, um, Charlie would have one ear on, one ear off, um, but the rest of the band wouldn't. And then, um, um, so in a semicircle, so it's kind of like live. And then... Um, and did you have to record everything? Yeah. So you must be going through so much tape. Oh, maybe, I, think, I think one album we went through about 300 reels. Easy. Oh and it became a bit of a nightmare when we moved from France to New York. <laughs> you have to ship. Well, yeah. actually, we wouldn't ship all those reels because by that time... We more than likely got, yeah. Well, that's a master. That's a master. We condensed it down a bit, yeah. But there were still big trunks. So are you? So about. They're, they're just spewing material. Yeah. And um, spewing material. Are yeah. you? Are you having to? Are you making notes? Absolutely, everyone. And, complete and, notes. And yeah. Did they? So in in this in this process of kind of jamming and essentially refinement. Yeah. Did they want to hear back? Did, in, did they know in the room when they, when they had it we're like yeah or did they want to listen back through to all of the, 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 the no they tapes? wouldn't listen back to all of them no right no they, they would listen so how back. do they select well they get to a point where you know they've gone through it enough or so many times they thought we better have a listen see how it's going they come and have a listen um, and then it would be decided you know is that working? Could that be better? Could that be different? Right, right, okay. And then maybe do it again. But it wasn't, it, there, I, there weren't many times when they would actually change the arrangement because the arrangements were pretty simple. But the difficult thing um, was, um, ver okay, intro, verse, maybe second verse, chorus, another verse, the middle eight. The middle eight, it was like the Grand National. <laughs> the middle eight, because there was nobody really, it was a complete feel thing. I mean, I would say to Charlie, I'd say, you know when the middle eight comes up, you do that Tom feel, we say, no. He said, where's that? It, it, and they don't think like that. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just playing and coming out. And if they happen to go to the right call at the right time, or put the right fill in at the right time, that's the magic. Yeah, that's the magic yeah. it's totally not overdone you know it wouldn't be like okay most bands would say okay we've got to really learn how to get into that middle eight <laughs> let's do the bit before going into it right, right, right. do it like six seven times right now we know it right um, they would never do that really so, yeah. they, would they just, so they wouldn't discuss it they would just keep no it. keep keep feeling it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's why this is quite interesting so I always thought it was quite interesting that and different that Char some of Charlie's drum fills going into a part are actually after the fact right yeah they don't go boom boom and then in they go yeah, yeah. boom boom and then it's like right, right, right. it's really fascinating but it's beautiful I, Charlie, it, some of my it, favorite it's like really quite you know it's unique and it works I mean yeah there are no rules in music so it really works and I, I learned that's what I learned a lot from working with them about about capturing that moment in, in music because you know when you do routine it and you know it to death too well then you forget the other nuances other things disappear absolutely um, and, and the, I guess the, the thing I found really interesting about their process is that I found with a lot of bands 
in my experience at least, when you're writing in the studio and you know, you're going in and you're refining, it, it, it tends to just get really boring. Yes, and, it's and that workman-like. Over-rehearsed. Yeah, and, it's and, like a job. And the Stones records, they could be opposite, they sound so vibrant. Yeah. And so they, they obviously, so I mean, I guess it's testament yeah. to how much of a functional musical unit that they were. Completely. That they could keep Absolutely. It and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and just actually saying that, um, and you'll love it about Charlie. So, um, on on the song on the title track, some girls, mm. when they were cutting that, um, um, Mick had so many verses because he had so many girls. So, <laughs> so that that song is it's it, it's a jam um, of him singing all the verses. So it's about fifteen minutes long. So after that 15 minutes, and there, there, may, there would have been a few other takes, you know, before we got this 15-minute piece mm. that had all the verses and the bridge, yeah. well, a couple of bridges, because they went through it twice or maybe yeah. three times, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then played it back and mixed it. Okay, Chris, he said, chop it down to four minutes. This is 16 track, right? Which is fine. Editing, I don't have a problem. Um, and um, I said, well, what verses do you want? He said, oh, you pick them. Uh, so no pressure. No, well, no, it wasn't. I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So um, I think you know you might have said that, but it was so. But what was amazing? Well, it wasn't because I knew this. I could go um, anywhere in that fifteen minutes, and Charlie's timekeeping. I could chop any piece anywhere I wanted, yeah. and you'd never. There wouldn't be slow down, speed up. It'd just be rock solid. I mean, yeah. rock solid. Um, and I. A lot of records that I recorded and produced in those days on tape, yeah. that's how the best performances got you know, captured. It was like two or three takes, um, and then you would edit together the best parts of that, of, but everyone playing together, obviously. Sure. And you knew instinctively, well, we can't go to that one because it slows down. Um, and, um, um, or, or you could go okay at the end of the song if there's a great end but it's sped up that's fine because it's going to the end so there's an energy rise yeah, there yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. fine but a, a lot of um, great recordings you know were um, great edits as well um, and it was just uh, and then later in my career when I'm working you know, with digital with people when clicks when clicks come in I mean you know I never fucking had a click in my life up until um, in fact, one of the worst things I did, this is really terrible, um, this is when we're doing steel wheels in, um, in Montserrat. And um, um, Mick, um, Mick had this really weird thing. He would count in, right, and he would speed up in the counting. <laughs> you go, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and he, I think this is the time actually when disco, well, no, it was after disco, but he was, I don't know, he'd become very aware of timing for some reason. Right. And, and he, I, I remember him suddenly saying, you know, starting along, and he said, and we've only been in like, you know, first 10 bars, so he said, Charlie, you're speeding up. And Charlie would go, well, no, he wasn't speeding up, he's like, Mick was always speeding up. <laughs> so, so, um, I bought, Mick, a boss metronome. Right. One of those little ones, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, this is when they first came out. Nightmare. And so Mick would count it in, press it, and watch it. And look, you know, uh, Charlie's speeding up. Uh, anyway, next day, Keith said, you fucking arsehole, why the <laughs> fuck did you buy that? Yeah, yeah. And Keith got on it and stamped on it. 
and yeah. smashed it. It's, it's, it's the death of field. Once, once, you, once you start looking, ah. uh, it's over. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay, you say it's the death of field, but it's the same as Pro Tools. Everyone looks at the yeah. music, looks at the file. It's over, man. You know, it's I, I, like. And, and, and when I why do you look? You don't. You you you, know, you hear music with your ears. Absolutely. And when I when I first got Pro Tools as a drummer, I started to look and I started to get obsessed with it. <laughs> and and I it was a good Chris. It was a good eighteen months yeah. of me. And then I go through it, and then I'm just like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to look. And everything, everything improved overnight. Yes. You're actually... But yeah. I, I wanted to get yeah. back to what you were saying about comping live takes, because yeah. that's something that I definitely learned from you. So the, the first time I recorded with you was the first time I ever recorded on tape. Right. At State of the Art. Oh, yeah. I'd never done it. Yeah. So what, this is like t- t- 10 years ago or so. And I know I was obviously, at that time, I was like nervous as shit. Because it was the first time I'd recorded on tape. Right. And um, I was just very aware of like, okay, I really can't fuck this up. Right. You know, and, and, and stuff. But and I remember we did sort of three takes or whatever. And I, I got, you know, I had all the, the usual musician performance anxieties that you have right. when you record. And you, and you were like, yeah, no, we'll just take, we'll just take this, this, this first verse and then we'll take this middle eight. And I'm like, that's not going to work. Right, right. My, my time's not that good. Right. And, and it and it, and it, it, it was. And it worked. And yeah. I do that at Urchin and as a producer and an engineer, I, I do that a lot. Yeah. With no click. Yeah. And it always amazes me. It's it lovely, isn't it? Man. Yeah. Unless, oh, unless, you know, someone's like yeah. really, but they've really changed yeah. it up. Yeah. But it, it actually, it, inspires, it makes you feel more creative with your playing and everything. You know, you're not beholding to this fucking, you know, this click thing. Yeah. You're beholding to, like, you know, enjoying the performance. Um, you just said something quite interesting there, actually. Um, you said about how you were nervous and, and worried about fucking up. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm just thinking about all the stuff I've ever done with the Stones. I, I never once felt or heard, Char- you know, Charlie would never um, give that feet, you know, he just sat there and played the drums, that was it. Yeah. You know, he wasn't... Um, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, um, that that's quite interesting. I think that's quite a good observation, actually, that you've got to take that nervous... Well, you need the adrenaline, don't you? You need yeah. that factor. But to be, like, you know, frightened of it, that's not good. It's not good. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then again, you can be too... Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I feel... A lot more comfortable with recording now than I did, you know, yes. in my early 20s. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you can be too relaxed about it as well. It were, there's, yeah, there's a fine yeah, <laughs> yeah, line on that, that. Is, sure. Is, is yeah, good. I mean, I'm not saying that Charlie doesn't give a shit, not, no. no way, but um, yeah. Um, I think I have to talk about Charlie. I think Charlie is, I mean, he's one of my favourite drummers. And I, I saw the Stones do the, the high Park gig. Um, Two years, three years ago. And and the thing that I thought the most was as a as a drummer, he's just completely irreplaceable. No one in the world could could if you replace and and for me, he's the thing that makes it sound like it's still yeah, even now the age that they're at and everything, it still smells the same. It's got the same musk if you like. Absolutely. It is because of him. He's yeah. got this feel that's just. Yeah. I've never heard anyone else. It's like a feel, and his like touch it. as well. His cool. touch. I mean, so in the world of drummers, I, I'm sure there's only like, apart from Charlie, maybe there's 
one or two others that you respect because of the touch they have, you know, not many, you know, having that touch is like, that's really special. Really special. Really so, so as, as a band, they must have been, it must have been nice to record them. Yeah. Because, you know, right. I, I mean, what I mean is, like, as well, an because they're all playing together. They're all playing together. Yeah. And they're all great players. And yeah. Such a good sound. And, and yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're about good sound. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Because no, that, that was the other nice thing. I was, you know, I would go out. I, I'm, yeah. Well, all of the albums, but I wasn't shy of going out and changing Keith's amp sound. Wait, oh, was he alright with that? Oh, well, well, it was easy to tell. He had a smile or go, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? That was yeah. quite easy. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, and actually, I never, we had a great moment in uh, Some Girls when he just got delivery um, of the MXR delay pedal, like digital, the analog delay pedal. Right. So I think it's on Shattered. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. Was he into it? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, he loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. it was really cool. And then, um, well, I think it was something else, to, but yeah, so, but their sound has always been, you know, guitar into amp, you know, no, and, and no, I mean, just, just to get really and, and the good, uh, great amp. So that album's all boogie amps when the boogie's face. Just to get really geeky, what, what, how did you make it? It was a U47. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> because Pathy Marconi had pretty much hundreds of them. <laughs> Really? Nice. Well, not hundreds, but a lot. Yeah. So, and is, um, is that ne how near the cone would you put that? Um, it would be about a foot away. Okay. Yeah. 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 So um, the same overhead on the drums was a forty-seven, and um, and vocals sixty-seven. Well, vocal. Um, yeah, it would be a forty-seven when we came to do it again. But sometimes we might use some of the live vocal, the scratch vocal, okay. which was a fifty-eight. So I just you know match it with another fifty eight afterwards. Really? Yeah. Okay. If if there were if there were some things that Mick really liked and but would you often recut vocals? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's some lovely moments in um, some girls actually. If you listen on headphones, can't remember which song. Um, one song I can't remember which one it is. But and he's changed the phrasing from the live take, and you can hear like a ghost. The, very, the, the, PA, the PA very in the distance. Really, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah, I love that doesn't worry yeah. I love this. Yeah, and I also put the snare drum through that PA as well because Charlie, you know, is 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 not a he's not a hard no, he's no, not. no. Is that just to give it a bit more juice in the room? Well, a bit more juice, well, so they could hear it as well without going to headphones. Okay, so they could hear it, but obviously that did translate somehow in the room. You know, the the although the. The PA was quite away from the drum mics. I'm sure that some of it travelled to that. Did you have like ambient mics as well? No, no ambient. Really? No, no, no. So all the room information is just coming into yeah, the yeah, yeah. coming into the place. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And what was that? What was that kind of their working day like? <laughs> was it a day, was it a day or, or or? No. Um, when I first got there, the sessions was. We start at seven o'clock in the evening. In the evening, okay. yeah. I'd get there at seven religiously for the first three days, and and then suddenly tweet. Actually, I shouldn't really come until I called up Keith's driver or Mick's driver to know that they're on the way, right. because I get there at seven and I'm still there at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and it varied. It, it generally, um, they get in after dinner, right? Okay. <laughs> and, okay. And, and leave before lunch. Really? Okay. Yeah, so it was pretty much midnight to midday almost. How, how did you find those hours? Well, once you start them, you just get, 
you know, I mean, you know, all other life goes out the window. Sure, sure. So, you know, uh, and living in Paris, and, you know, so, uh, you know, spent the best part on and off of like four years in Paris doing these albums. Yeah. So, I mean, the, fir the first, t you know, couple of years, it, I, I was staying in a hotel. I mean, the band was staying in different hotels, They're all different places, but, but then afterwards, so they all getting fed up going to restaurants every, you know, for breakfast, you know, 7 p.m. <laughs> breakfast, you know. Oh, no, not escargot again, but I just want some eggs and bacon. Um, so what, what we would do is um, Ian, Stu and myself and Alan Dunn, um, we, we clubbed together at Diems and rent a, a house. Okay. So, yeah, so that was much more... I guess that, that, that must have made it easier in a sense of, like, if ever I've done something, like, away from if I've been working in America or I've been doing it like a residential thing, it's much easier to keep a regular house because you're not at home. You, 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 yeah. you don't have your home routine. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, so much. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So, yeah. I guess if you're away... I mean, in a way, now I look at it, it's almost like being in the army. <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, because, you know, okay, yep, off you go. Yep, cool. <laughs> yep, keeps on his way. <laughs> and were they focused in those, you know, in when they when you're working, for, say from midnight to midday, whatever. Yeah. Are they are they are they focused and? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're there to play. Yeah. They're there to play, and um, um, there there would generally be. And, and I, I, I used to keep them out of control, but <laughs> there would generally be like a posse of people who would come down. I was going to ask. Yeah, that. yeah. yeah. They'd, they'd be admirers. Did you uh, find that uh, distracting? Yeah. Not for me, no, because no, okay. I kept them out of the control room. Okay, okay. And, and yeah. I just saw that it was, you know, it's, it was good for the band because, you know, their mates were coming to see them, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, I've sometimes done that in the studio with an artist or a band who are, are like, terrified, I'm in the studio. I think, how the fuck can I, I've got to get them to relax. So, I'll, you know, I'll invite, I'll suddenly find out where their mates are and get them all to come around. Yeah. Uh, and so they, you know, they got a bit of an audience there, right. which, which yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so you, you know, you get a, a variety of guests coming in and out. Yeah. Um, uh, so, in a sense, it was a bit like a club in that respect. Yeah. I mean, there was a bar. Yeah, there was a, there was a, yeah, yeah, there was always vodka and Jack Daniels and Coke and Orange and um, peanuts and crisps. And, um, so, so if, I, I'd love to do a record like that where the band don't come into to, to, into the control room and start obsessing <laughs> about like the hi hats or I know what I mean. It's yeah, just like, yeah. So they take they took care of their business. Yeah, completely. You yeah, took care of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And and because I would um, sadly all these books got lost. I don't know how that happened, but you know the, the log books of all the takes of all the reels of tape. There were long yeah, books, yeah, long, yeah. long books. Um, and uh, not all of them got lost, but a lot of them got lost. And so I would, you know, I would make notes if like take 36 um, of, um, you know, I don't know, far away, well, no, not far away, as that was on a lot quicker. Take 36? Yeah, take 30. Oh yeah, some, I mean, there would be, you know, if they're in there playing the same song for an hour and a half, you get up to 36 you, takes. You right? up, yeah, so, and, and I would make general that, oh, this could be good, you know, that bit there, I'd, 
um, you know, I'd make notations about it all, for yeah. sure. Because they, then they would come in and go, oh, yeah, that one. i go, well, you better check out this bit here, because this is really interesting. Yeah, and yeah. then you go back and maybe chop it in. So, yeah. Um, I do remember, so that console at EMI in Paddy Marconi in Paris was a, the EMI TG1234 that's at State of the Art Studios. Is that there? Which, which, which yeah, we recorded yes. on. Yeah, which you recorded on. Yeah. And was that, if I remember, was that your first session? I think State it was. Yes, it was. You were really excited. I was really excited. Yeah, and I, I didn't realise the significance of that until afterwards. Okay. So I, was just, I was only focused about not fucking up my job. Right. <laughs> and then I realised. Yeah. It was like seeing an old girlfriend because. Really? Yeah, that hours that I'd sat behind that console I mean hundreds and hundreds of hours um, and it was just so so such a delight to see it and um, but so in the in the hours of recording the band um, so you know you are recording one song for a good hour right and uh, and you you're trying to you know you have to pay attention but you know you do drift off sure, of course <laughs> but of course. Uh, but I would drift off by like I go, I wonder, I'll try this and suddenly slam a compressor because there's compressors built on the console, but they're very severe as well. And I go, put it on and go, oh, fuck. And then, then, like, sometimes I'd be mixing and go, I wonder why the fuck that gets loud there? What's going on there? Because I'm twiddling with it in the original recording. We're always quite aggressive about printing effects to tape or at at that time, so well, early uh, or were you like, I want to keep my options open? No, effects would only be, my effects would only be um, EQ. Um, and on that particular record, those compressors. Okay, but so you, you, were, you, were, you were printing them? And oh yeah, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. Going yeah. hard. Oh yeah, yeah, completely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, actually, that's why that record sounds amazing, because those compressors on that desk are very severe. But I wouldn't put everything through... I'd be very selective, and also depending on what the song was or what the sound was too. How many? How, I forgot, how many channels is that board? Is it sixteen? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, well, it was a sixteen. Yeah, it was sixteen track tape. Yeah. Right. So, so it was. Yeah. was no, there would have been. I think it's twenty four inputs. Okay. Yeah, I think it's twenty four. Yeah. So was the mixing process for you? Uh, you know, you already got the sound. Yeah. You know, it's not a question of right. Yeah. So is it just a question of balance? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, question of balance. And then reverb. Okay. Or any other um, tricks. Magic. Yeah. Studio magic. Yeah. yeah. And where did you mix them? Um, Okay, so um, some girls, um, I mixed that uh, Electric Lady in New York, which is great. I love mixing it there. Um, Bobby Clear Mountain mixed some of it as well. Did you? Yeah, because that was... That was um, the start of remixes, that period. And I was quite offended when Earl McGrath, who was the president of Rolling Stones record, lovely man, when Earl said, and Earl was from New York City, Earl said, yeah, I've got this kid, Barbie Clearmountain, I'm going to get it, he does, going to do a remix of Miss You. So I was like, which was, you know, the the first single of the, and I was like, oh, okay, well, fuck that. (laughs) And then, then like, yeah, the album's out, number one, whatever. And, and about three months later, I'm, I'm working in Los Angeles and I'm driving to the studio down Pacific Coast Highway, as you do, with the rented Mustang on the roof yeah. down, with, this, you know, with the radio turned full up. And, and um, a Miss You comes on. Right. 
And I'm listening, I'm going, fucking hell, this sounds unbelievable. Oh, Bobby is really fucking good. He's great. Um, it gets to a point in the song where um, if it's Bobby's mix, it's the seven-inch version. There's no elongated saxophone solo. If it's the original mix, my mix, there's the full saxophone solo. Mm. The full saxophone solo comes on. <laughs> and I went, oh my God. You're like congratulating yeah, yourself. It's, like, <laughs> it's my mix. Oh, shit. But, which was really good for my ego, but it's also really good because then, then I suddenly grew up and I went, wait a minute, if it's in the grooves, if it's recorded well, and you know, you'd be an idiot to fuck it up type of thing. Why were they remixing so, back then? Was, uh, it for, was it for radio? Yeah, for... I, think it, I think it was for radio, but I, I, I truly think it became like a bit of a fad, a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a thing. Um, and, and maybe also in a sense, well, the fact that I couldn't tell the difference between my mix and Bobby's, that, that spoke volumes to me. So that, after that, if someone said, oh, we're gonna get so-and-so to remix it, I said, fine, great, you know, go on. I don't, you know, as long as it's, as long as it doesn't, you know, as long as it's not fucked up, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, so, but that was quite an eye-opener, um, but I think, um, um, I think, um, I think the remixing, it became more like a, um, a sound that the industry wanted, so it was acceptable on every radio, or could be, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the, too, the, the industry yeah, uh, still get yeah. in their bonnets about certain uh, things, radio yeah. mixes, and yeah, 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 both yeah, yeah, what, what, yeah. So, 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 something else I wanted to, to, to talk about was, you know, obviously someone that's that's worked, that started in the sixties here. How, when digital first started coming in, hmm. is that something you you embraced, yeah. or you were like? Yeah, you know. Oh, I like Or it. did you wait? Because I know a lot of people like waited until it, you know, until it got be- quote unquote better. Um, well, I can't remember what year I, I, I because I, I moved into Sphere Studios. So when did Sphere open? Gosh, okay, it must have been like fifteen years ago, maybe longer. Yeah. I moved into Sphere Studios because I wanted my own little room yeah. to write. And also, you know, to do my own kind of things, but also to bring projects to where I could mix or do overdubs. Um, that's when, uh, I, first, be, that's be, when I first met you. Was I, it? We recorded drums in your little room as well. We, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, it sounded good. Yeah, <laughs> loud, it was loud. I mean, because that room was so small. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, um, and also, the, I did that as well because I'd kind of, I'd been almost like a gypsy um, after after um, like the Frampton thing, um, the Frampton comes alive, the success of that, and, and working with the Stones for 14 years on and off, you know, which was never here. It was always Paris or Nassau right. or Montserrat or New York, you know, never here. Um, and working a lot in Berlin, Hansa, you know, Vancouver, everywhere. Um, I got to a point where I went, I don't want to, you know, I just want to, my own little room. Yeah. So well, that's when digital was just starting, um, and um, I, I bought, I got a Sony DMX digital desk because I checked out all the small desks and I loved the sound of it. I wasn't worried about if it was sixteen bit, twenty four bit, or anything like that. I just something that I like that you know yeah, I like yeah. the sound of. And also, it was very practical because of being digital. You could just go from one project to another the touch of a button. Um, that was quite interesting. So I embraced it. Um, I had Logic and Pro Tools. 
and I, but I treated it the same as a tape recorder. Right. Uh, I didn't, um, and also not MIDI friendly. I, I'm not MIDI friendly, yeah. um, and you know, still, you know, don't I don't want to click. Uh, I want to, you know, a rhythm section in the band done, um, and <laughs> and. Um, and all the young engineers used to come and say, you're crazy, if you put it to, you know, if you get a grid, you know, you can just do this, this. I said, I don't need a grid, because I just take big chunks and put it together. So, um, so, so, work, so going from analog, yeah. working with digital, yeah. you're obviously applying the same process. Completely. From analog, but Absolutely. So in the sound, yeah. it, you felt, yeah. oh, I, can, I can work with yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. But then obviously I did, you know, I did get deeper into it and, um, and it was fun. I, I, I would use it creatively, the digital editing. Uh, I mean, as much as the analog editing is creative, mm-hmm. um, you, you, know, you are taking the whole performances of everybody um, in big lumps and moving them. Um, the, the digital thing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't take like, oh, I like that drum bit there and that bass bit there. I'd still take big chunks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, you know, with vocals, if there was something that was really good. Um, it was good for comping vocals for sure. I mean that that's yeah that's terrific. I mean, but then so was analog. Although you only had maybe three tracks or two tracks, but then you know the the vocalists had to wrap their game, and you all had to wrap your game, and you know yeah, there is something and, and about focus and get it you know yeah get it li- the best li- limited options that yeah. makes everyone up their game yeah absolutely because if you tell someone oh you've got you know absolutely hundred tracks to do this yeah be interesting wouldn't it be interesting if if like tomorrow all the plugins in the world disappeared <laughs> and how you know who would survive who would be able to mix <laughs> who would be able to mix a record yeah. or even record a record without all those plugins yeah I mean I, I would <laughs> yeah I like to think I would but I'm not sure we'll, we'll see tomorrow yeah okay. we'll find out when the plugins are <laughs> but, but I mean talking about the, the, I feel like I've well, you know I, obviously I've grown up in the digital age yes. but I've worked in sort of analogue yeah the analogue medium with you and, and with other people and for me the, the, the sound the thing that informs the sound of analogue is as much the process as it is the sound you, you know now, now obviously tape has its own unique sonic properties yeah. but if you do treat Pro Tools just like a tape machine and say okay yeah. you can't ignore ignore the grid yeah. you can't edit anything individually yeah. and just take chunks I mean yeah. that that's yeah. you know a big part of, of yeah. the, the discipline of, 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 yeah, the discipline and, yeah. and the process the attitude yeah sure yeah, yeah. it's taking the there's a, a, a thing I always like to uh, um, I always like to work in a studio where um, you take the studio out of being in the studio you know you don't you don't walk in and go oh wow <gasps> look at all that gear or you're like yeah, overawed yeah, yeah. by the studio you know yeah, the studio is a device to help you you're not you're not helping the studio. You know, it's like it's there Absolutely. to help you. Uh, and, and I feel, and, and again, I feel that like as a as an engineer and a producer, I don't want the studio to get in the way of the sound no. of a band no. or the sound of no. a person. I don't, you know, I don't want to. I don't want the studio to impose on the on the process. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I, yeah. I, as a, when I first a lot of people started, don't understand that. A lot of people don't understand you know, that. They and, get, and, and they get fixated with fixated on, yeah, with on stuff like, you don't need to. You know, completely. And, yeah. And yeah. I remember when I first started going into on certain sessions mm. and just being so intimidated because 
you know, engineer will say, oh, you know, that your drum kit sounds rubbish. Yes, or, yes. Or it's ringing too much. Yeah. Or whatever, whatever. Yeah, whatever yeah, 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 yeah. And then make it sound rubbish. And, yeah, and, and, and then you can't play it. And then you can't play it. Because you hit it and it's like nothing yeah. comes out of it. It's like, yeah. ooh. So, yeah. and, and that was always what was great about working with, with, with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Always made. Yeah. You, know, you understand the musician's psyche. Yeah, but also I, th- I think because, as I said earlier, because my interest and love is is this capturing this sound. It's like, it's more about that than manipulating the sound or having a desire to uh, control it. The only way I want to control it is make sure I capture it and it's preserved. And the way I capture it is like, that's wonderful. That's very cool. You know, in everything. It's it's like the the live music sessions that I host at Olympic. Um, I didn't record those until, well, actually, I should have recorded them from the beginning, but um, I, I think I've just been recording from the last like six months, and and it's I'm just going straight into a Zoom, right. from the PA mixer out into the Zoom, and um, I've got it to a fine art now, which is quite lovely. In so much as um, um, uh, if if there's um, a bass guitar, uh, because normally it's acoustic performances but if there's a bass guitar obviously if it's electric piano that's going through the PADI but if there's a bass guitar I will have the bass player bring his amp because um, if I put the balance that I need in the stereo mix that's being recorded into the PA the bass would be too loud so um, it's a really I have to I'm I'm kind of pre-mixing with how the blend is yeah. in the room, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but when I get it home, it's like magic. It's absolute magic, and I can't do anything with it. Right, you know, right. it's like <laughs> that's it. Well, I can't except I do because then then I do go into plug in heaven, and then I will you know I'll take the whole stereo track performance and I'll put it through reverb and like fuck with it. So you don't know there's reverb, but there's an atmosphere. I just add more and more. At- I magnify the so atmosphere. That's not, that's not fucking with it that much. No, well, no, no. But I'm, and, you know, I'm, I'll be compressing the whole thing. I'll be doing shit sure, to sure. it. Um, and that's one I do with a band called Dubellos, who I love. And I even started phasing the whole performance at one time because it was pretty cool. And they went, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" It's like it's, uh, it's uh, funny that you saying that. This goes back to your. At the start of our conversation, it goes back to your initial interest is when you were a boy. Completely. Of, of get, capturing something on tape. Completely. And, and I guess Absolutely. you could say that your, yeah. your career and your life in music has just been yeah. a refinement of that. Yeah. Of, of, yeah. You know, yeah. capturing yeah. sound. But then you learn, as you said, that in producing, you learn that's one element, the sonic thing. But then, you know, with knowledge and working, then you understand the psychic thing of the musician and, you know, how... Uh, you know, putting great you know musicians together. There's, there's nothing I love more than having a, a solo artist. And okay, okay, let's get a rhythm section together. And it's yeah. like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> um, but even so, that still goes back to that thing of like, well, if I get them, them, and her, and then it's like, ooh. And and, and it, that it, is that something you, you obviously have something you've done a lot, like fixing, fixing rhythm sections. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So it's really, so important, isn't really it? Really great fun. You get that wrong, and you're you're you're, you're oh yeah <laughs> in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Touch wood. Um, I can't. Yeah, I can't really. Uh, I've been lucky. In with um, this um, this album that I'm doing with an artist now, Noah Noah Johnson. Um, after hearing the songs, um, I knew exactly exactly what drum sound I wanted, 
I mean, exactly. And I didn't know, I, there wasn't one room that I'd recorded in, in the UK that I'd heard it. Really? So I went online and started looking at rooms and, and places, and I came across East Coast. Okay. And um, I was very lucky because I didn't even go there to check it out. That was a bit silly, but I didn't go there. I just booked it, and I was right. Really? It was exactly the drum well, the, sound. The room's not that big, there. No, it? no, it's small. No, it's 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 not even as big as this room. It was. Well, it's almost as big as this yeah. room. But it's very. It's it it's um it's dead, but it it's resonant at the same time. Yeah. What? So what? What were you after? Um. I was after um, um, an intimate sound, but that wasn't sort of the, an intimate sound, but also a sound that the, the drummer would enjoy playing yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? um, so, yeah, completely, <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Um, and was a very balanced sound as well. Mm. So, um, I was just really, so, and I left there. Um, but <laughs> who, who was the drummer you recorded? It was Ash Soane. Okay. Ash Soane, yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, who um, we had a long discussion before the session about the sound. So, he bought this uh, Saki kit. Yes. In. Well, he bought a few kits, but the Saki was the first one he put up. I said, that's it. That's exactly fantastic. Great, Ash. And you know, we tweaked the tuning a little bit, but uh, it was like that was it. Uh, I, you know, I heard this sound in my head like weeks before. I found the studio, and now there's the drum kit and the drummer. They, you know, but but the drum kit was like wow. So you know, we did like five days recording, and then came back. I know, like two two weeks later, to do some more. He turned up with a different kit, <laughs> and he said, "I said, Ash, I said, where's the kit?" He said, oh, it'll be fine. He said, we can get it to sound like that kit. I said, you reckon? He said, yeah. I said, just play me some. And he played a few. I said, good luck. <laughs> and he said, it'll be fine. I said, yeah, okay. I said, where is the other kit? He said, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's about 20 minutes away. I said, okay. So, so I left him for about half an hour, tuning, tuning. And it was like, I just walked into Ash, just go home and get the other kit. And he said, he said, I can't believe, because we were, we were listening to what we recorded the week before right. and this kit. And it was all the same mics, everything the same. But right. this kit did not. So that much difference? That much difference. Yeah. I mean, really that much. And here's, you know, here's a drummer who knows how to tune yeah, his kit. Yeah, a great drummer. Um, but it, it was more than that. It, it was actually just the tone yeah. of, uh, um, uh, you know. I guess as well, if you were after something yeah. that specific. Well, exactly. That you'd heard previously. Yeah, and the fact that we got it, it was like, that's why I was like in shock. I said, yeah. what, what, why have you bought that kit? It was like, yeah. where is that kit? In fact, I got him to leave it there for a couple of months because I did use it again on another session. Really? I love that. Yeah, well, it's really, really good. Really, really good. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was interesting, actually. But um, a minimal micing as well. You know, just like, I get these funny emails from, from engineers and people in the States saying, what microphone do you use on the bottom of a snare drum? <laughs> oh, do you, do you not? No. Never? No, no. I used to. No, but I don't. No, not yeah. anymore. I mean, I, no. I, I, again, that's something like... Well, the first time, I think the, the, the drum sound that's blown me away the most was the, the first time I worked with Ethan Johns. Yeah. And he's like, there's like four mics on the Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it was just like, yeah. what, what magic have you worked here? Yeah. It, it just, it just yeah. sounded fantastic. Yeah. And, that, and that's something that, 
I, I love a two, a two or a three mica. Yeah. If you get that, yeah. Um, you know, the drummer's got to be good. But, yeah. But if you get that working, yeah. Well, the the, the drummer's got to be good. The 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 yeah the the mixing or matching of the drums has got to be good. Yeah. There's a lot of variables, but it's common sense really. It's really you know it's um, yeah um, and and yeah and the room has got to be sympathetic as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's um, uh, do you know um, Simon Hanson? No. Okay, Simon plays with Squeeze. Right. And he plays with a band called Thirsty that I worked with um, last year or the year before. We're doing another album. And, and Simon records all these drums at home. Um, it's, it's a bit of a strange process. I only come in to kind of talk about the arrangements and mix it. Um, not really much involved in the recording of it. But that's because when I first heard what they were doing, I left them to it. So um, I was just intrigued by this drum sound. And he's like a, two, a three mica, you know, that's it, bass drum overheads, maybe a snare. Uh, I love this drum sound. It's really big. It's bombastic. Really? But it, 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 yeah, it's really cool. So I said, I've got to come over and see this room. So it, it's, it's in his bedroom, if he's fat. And it's, it's a bit like this room, right? I mean, it, it's almost, you know, um, it's a rectangle box. So I even went to the extreme. I've measured the room up. <laughs> Everything. I know where the radiators are, the windows. <laughs> It's just, and, and actually, the secret is the bass drum had to be playing towards the, the, the radiator in the window. If you turn the kit round in any other way, the room doesn't work. Really? But with the bass drum looking at that wall, it was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, we, yeah. We, going back to like um, my first experience of recording, talking about our, our first experience, was, was I had a, a shed with a kit set up and I had a, like a, just a, a cassette recorder mm. that, with a mic on. Yeah. And um, the first time I set that up in a certain position, I just recorded my drums. Yeah. Now, obviously, they were all wasn't designed to record that. Yeah. But and it was all really distorted and really mashy. Yeah. But I loved it. Yeah. I, I absolutely of loved it. And, yeah. And there was a certain yeah. spot that I wish I still had those tapes. I don't know where, they, where they've gone, but um, mm. there was a certain spot where that was the best. Yeah. Spot where the recorders sounded best. Yeah. And I think part of me has tried to chase that sound. Or I find I find those gnarly, distorted, yeah, mono, yeah, my drum sounds just yeah. very pleasing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I tend yeah. to like lean towards yeah that kind of yeah yeah that, yeah that yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's also that's a yeah, you've hit on another thing there about stereo, um, and um, I could never understand how. Um, people record everything in stereo. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I agree. It's you do that, you've got nothing, there's no focus. Everything's a layer upon layer upon layer. It's all trying to come from the same place. It's like crazy. Mm. Um, I'm, uh, loving, I'm loving like mono drums at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Loud, yeah. Drums, yeah, give it to yeah. me. I, I, I really, um, uh, there was a lovely thing that happened the other week in the studio where we put up this mix and, and like, because it had been it's an analogue desk so things were coming out different outputs and all of a sudden the vocal the lead vocal was coming out the right speaker and um, the snare drum overhead um, was coming out of the left speaker the bass drum was in the middle and I went oh I really like that can we let's work on that what but it was so cool to hear the vocal just coming from one speaker yeah it was like of course it's a bit dangerous then because if you do do that you know people the way they set up the systems they might not have um, in fact, it happened to me. I've just realised I was doing some mastering. That's right. And um, 
and um, I decided uh, after we'd done a test mastering went home to listen and I decided that I wanted there was one mix with um, there was like a drum groove at the beginning that we'd taken off but I wanted to put it back on so um, I called up um, the engineer and said can you find that mix and stick it on so you know the front of the master mix so we can remaster it so he did that sent it to me and I'm listening to it the drum intro which goes into acoustic you know the band come in there's a little solo acoustic guitar and I'm listening to it and I'm going Hello, Where, where's that? Where's the solo guitar gone? It's fucking, it's not there. Oh my god, he sent me the wrong mix. So, emails going backwards and forwards, stop the mastering. What I don't, well, I'd forgotten that the guitar was panned to one side, <laughs> and I was, I was listening on like a Bluetooth thing, and I was only listening to the left <laughs> side. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit. So, yeah. Okay. So lesson from that was yeah, okay. Yeah. If you've got a lead instrument, put it in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always like the way sometimes you'll be in a pub or a restaurant or something, and like a sixties record, like a Beatles record will come on, and it will just be the oh yeah, it will just be the vocals and the tambourine. Yeah, 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 like, sure. And yeah. then you go for a piss and you yeah. get the rhythm section. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah, I think that's um, that's quite fun. Yeah, that's fun. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think my whole journey is. Um, just this love and joy, and it's very childlike in a way about how you know to capture this sound or or to just create a situation where you capture that sound, which is related to a performance, which is related to related to goes on and on like a DNA in a way. Yeah, it's quite lovely. Um, Chris, we we've, we've talked for a long time. I'm gonna have to yeah. this down. Thank, um, thanks, man. Yeah, for, for yeah. talking to me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And just before just before we go. Yes. And. Um, you're doing these uh, regular gigs here? Yeah, um, once a month in the music room at Olympic. Um, it's a live session. Wow. Um, and um, it's a small, intimate room. Great sound in there. Um, normally about 50 people you can get in there. And, and I've, had, um, I've had some lovely artists in there. Um, um, I've got Terry Reid coming in um, in April. After that, I've got David Knopfler um, coming in, but I've had, um, I've had, since we started, I've had Antonio Forcioni. Um, most of these people I've worked with, not all of them, but okay. I, I like to, well, I do that for two reasons. A, I know they can do it, because it's quite terrifying to sit and play like, sure. as close as I am to you. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, not everybody can do that, um, but they need to. Um, 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 Marcus Bonfanti, oh, yeah, blues okay. um, guitar player, Paddy Milner, keyboard player, amazing, Tom Baxter, then Jackerman, um, Todd Dorigo, John Butler, Alexander Wolfe, Noah Francis, Victoria Torrance, Gemma Hayes, beautiful um, Irish singer, lovely, Shay Sager, Chris Jagger with Charlie Hart, Catty Pearson, um, Simon Eugene, um, so, and that's monthly yeah. at yep. Olympic? At Olympic Studios in Barnes, well, Olympic Studios Cinema, Restaurant Bar. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really good fun. Molly Marriott, she was over in January. That was a good night. Um, yeah, so it's, it's nice in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I love um, live recording. I, you know, yeah, I get a real buzz out of that. 
are the recordings available for people to listen to? Um, yeah, well, generally, I just I give them to the artist. Oh, okay. And they do with them what they want, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I go home and edit all the you know, bits you don't want to hear. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, some of the banter in between goes sure, on. Sure, there, sure. So. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, yeah. Good, yeah. good luck with that. And Chris, yeah. thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to sit and talk with you. It really yeah. is. Yep, that two kids in a toy shop. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Chris. That was great.